Well, I tell you something. <clears throat> tell me the shorish of Tarnagol. Tarnagol? <laughs> is it in the Tanakh, Tarnagol? No? It's in, it's like it's in the Shabbat songs. In the Tanakh, they want to call him Sechvi. Oh, Sechvi. That's why they say, Hanotin la Sechvi, Vino la Havchim, Ben Yomo, Ben Laila. It's a Sechvi. So wait, where does it say Tarnagol in the Shabbat Nigonim? It says Tarnagol, doesn't it? Tarnagolim, Muslav, right. you got it. So where, do, where else does it speak of Tarnagol? In, uh, in the Talmud, well, does it speak of Tarnagol? Take Barzel. Pardon? Take the word Barzel. Barzel, yeah. Iron. Uh, also not a Hebrew word. Not a Hebrew word? No. It's iron, Barzel. Is it huh? for Brazil? Persia? Well, it came at Parsilu. Was the name that it had that we didn't invent it. We had Nechoshet. And Nechoshet, Nachash, etc., etc., it's easy. But um, um, there were, it first was a word in Sumerian, then it became a word in. in Wait, it, do, it doesn't say Barzel in the Torah somewhere? Yes, it does. Lotanif Ali in Barzel, right? Don't don't make a misbeach with barzelah. Oh, right, 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 right. But it's a it's an imported word. Sus is an imported word. Wait, wait. How how do we know that? What? How do we know that that's not the original word for the horse? Because when you go to, um, uh, they didn't have horses for a long time. Gamal there was, Chamor there was, Ez Shor. Par, these are all good Hebrew words. You want to see where, where Yankala is? If, if he is planning to come, I want him to come here and be... Okay. Wait, oh, you got this machine here. When they chased them to the Red Sea, they, it says they came in with horses. That's true. But did, and did the Egyptians have horses then? Well, what does it say in the uh, Chumash? Don't send anybody back to Mitzrayim. Right. So they had, the, the word is an Egyptian word that ah. was taken in with the horse. Mm -hmm. Just the same way as Tuki, you know, the, the bird. Right. It's a Tamil word that came uh, through when Shlomo HaMelech ah. had Etzion Gever as the port where they... So once you get into history, you learn a lot of interesting things about words that are... Yayin is not a Hebrew word. No? No. Yayin? Chemar is, and Yayin is not. Yayin, yayin is oeno in Greek. So the Greek is the Shorish? The Greek is, it is taken in from the Greek and became Yayin in Hebrew. Your, your belovedest is a scintillating conversation. Gesundheit. He'll be down in a minute. Yeah. Nichnas Yayin, Yatsasod. So there are a lot of a lot of interesting things. Samach <coughs> was not often used. So that in the uh, <laughs> we are talking Jewish trivia now. <laughs> in the Alchet, you know, uh, where it comes to Samach is Besikur Ayin is spelled with a sin. Because originally we didn't have a Samach. It came in from Ugaritic. Ah. So so all kinds, all kinds of fun stuff. Wow. Now, um, today is the yard site of Reb Sholem Dov Bear, 
uh, my Rebbe's father. And so I'd like to be able to share a little bit about <coughs> about him and what he said and who he was. <coughs> and then I want to have... <coughs> Sorry. Do you want me to get you some water? No, that's fine. It's just a frog coming up. <clears throat> it's almost the time for frogs to come up. Yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> so, <clears throat> because we're in <clears throat> in the month of Nissan, <clears throat> um, we should start talking a little bit about Pesach, but I don't see the rest of the Hevra here today, so I don't think we're going to meet until after Pesach. I'm just telling you because it's not likely that people will have time. Uh, once The closer we get to Pesach, the more we're going to get busy and, and so on and so forth. And I don't think that that the other Haverim who are, ah, here they are. Look at that. <coughs> I was about to give up hope. Oh, sorry. <coughs> hope springs eternal. Sorry. So I got great news. You know, Amitai is in New York on the Hebrew High trip. With Mark Soloway. With Mark Soloway. And, right? So he called this morning and said, yesterday's highlight was going to 770. Mm -hmm. And um, he said, what's that word? I didn't see him hanging in, and I said, effigy. You. <laughs> uh huh. You weren't hanging in effigy. That's and incredible. Why, why would they do that? I'm joking. <laughs> and he's jo <laughs> and, and he... Um, After all, it's like the guy in Afghanistan who converted to Christianity, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I converted to renewal. <laughs> He also said that he was very tempted, though, <coughs> that the rabbi who was giving the tour mm -hmm. told the story of how the rabbi gave away a dollar to everybody who came to visit, and, and Amitai said, ah, should I tell him that Reb Zalman used to get two dollars? <laughs> uh -huh. He remembers that story. But he did something for me that I've been trying to get somebody to do. Who? Amit Mark. No, Amitai. Yeah. He went to Ground Zero, and uh, when they started to daven there, he called me on the cell phone so I could say Kaddish with the... How wonderful. He was, he said it so, he was really overwhelmed by it. I talked to, to Junior Maggit about giving someone Hebrew lessons. Yeah? Good. He's doing some bar mitzvah tutoring now, too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's that's wonderful. So, I was going to do something about uh, the Rebbe's yard site. It's based uh, Nissan. I'll get to that. But now that you came in, I'm glad. I just want to say next week, until after Pesach, we won't meet again. Because we all... Good, have I have a lot of work to do. The Chikalano Shata, you know? Our time is, is, is very close. Um, do you sometimes hear... Uh, Tom Throckmorton on the radio. He's the guy from Fort Collins who gardens. He's in the morning uh, 
on Wednesday he's in the morning edition and so on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I've heard him. Okay. He's cool. So I asked him for, for this sticker here because um, if you want a copy, you, this is good stuff for sermons, okay? <laughs> Michael Leben. Uh, is everything okay? Yeah, I just I promised to help you with something. Yeah, you look a little glum. No, I'm fine. Okay. Let it ring. That's yours. Let it ring. I was mevater on mine too. Okay, here is Throgmorton. Spring is the season of rebirth and renewal. Nothing illustrates this more than the growth of seed once it's planted in the ground. KUNC Garden of Tom Throgmorton has more. And so it goes. Seeds are amazing. They can lie for centuries, protected from decay and disease, by their hard, tight seed coat. Recently, a 1,300-year-old lotus seed was germinated and grown at UCLA. The seed was found in China, buried in an ancient Buddhist lotus garden. A UCLA professor followed the instructions in a 1,400-year-old gardening book. <laughs> the seed coat was scratched with a pot chart. The life that had waited so long sprouted once the seed coat was nicked. Mm -hmm. This is wonderful. Huh? That's great. Where does this come from? And you look, huh? Where, where does this come from? Where do we... From uh, from the radio, uh, yeah. uh, and uh, Tom Throckmorton yeah. told her, hang in there, just to, it's only starting. <laughs> when I heard this, I had the sense of how tradition, you know, has a seed coat. <laughs> and it doesn't grow until it gets nicked. Mm. So, get that? Mm. The mashal, the nimshal is just wonderful. Mm. Okay. Inside of a seed lies a life waiting to burst out. The seed coat protects this embryo. When the seed is sown, the embryo absorb moistures, absorbs moisture and expands. The seed coat doesn't expand as fast and splits open. We've all seen that, you know. Some seed, like lotus, need a little help. They need scarified, like being nicked with a pot chart, gently filed, or even soaked with acid. Meira, welcome. Thank you. Oxygen, moisture, and heat cause the embryo to expand and break the coat. Hypocotyl pushes, pushes into the soil. This is the first root to anchor the seedling. It's like that, that little that goes down, it absorbs oxygen and water. How does it know where it's down and where it's up? That's always a big interesting thing because you can put one bean, you'll put it in this way, another bean, you'll put that way, and nevertheless, that part that is to become root will go down and the other one will go up, okay? The, so the first one is called the hypocotyl. That's the one, the hypod lower. The apicotyl, or stem, is next. It shoots up, breaking through the soil. 
the tip of the apicotal is bent down to protect the sensitive growing point. When I go and buy my lulav every year, I pick a lulav that is, has a little thing like mm-hmm. tiny fiddlehead on, on top. I don't like the one that is really sticking out because then they start splitting and and uh, uh, will it get pasul, will it stay? So I like the one that's slightly bent on top, okay? So he's saying this one is bent, yeah. The food that pushes the hypocotyl down and the hypocotyl up is the starchy endosperm stored in the seed. Okay? This is a critical time. The seed's environment must consistently be warm and moist. If it's too cool, the seedling may exhaust its energy reserve, burn up all the, 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 the starch. If it's too wet, the oxygen will be forced out of the soil, and it won't have enough oxygen to... Amazingly, most seeds survive. And all this energy to grow is stored in a minuscule begonia seed. Now that's amazing. Once the stem breaks through the soil, the seedling leaves the seedlings leave leaves open. These small leaves begin photosynthesizing the sun's energy. What you used to call the first four leaf thing, you know, when when a plant first comes out. This is a kickstart of energy for another amazing alteration. Almost at once, the true, the first true form, the first true leaves form. The seedling leaves wither, and roots begin branching into the soil. The seed became a seedling, and now is a plant. The plant will grow on to bear more, more seed. Mm-hmm. It's just such a wonderful thing. So I <coughs> called him up, and I said, I want to use this for a sermon. Mm. So if you want a copy of that, I'll give it to you because it has this wonderful material. Any machshavas that you get about how to apply it, any nimshals? It's Pesach. Huh? It's Pesach. Go ahead. The, the seed is planted, you know, and, or nicked with Pesach and <clears throat> begins to bud with Shavuot. You know, we, we, get, we get the first part of freedom there and we... And then it buds with the with the, the photosynthesis and light from Torah from from Sinai. So you could go to Brisbane Absorim and you can say, "Ger uh, and that's gotta be the nick, and then they'll grow. Yeah. yeah? Okay. That's yeah. a good one. So I, it's funny because I started with Pesach, and then I, as soon as you said tradition has a seed code and that it doesn't uh, flourish until it's nicked. But at the conclusion, <coughs> that once, it, once it develops, it reproduces more seeds. So tradition actually gives birth to... More tradition. Yeah. Asher zarobo, mm-hmm. right? But what do you think is the nicking part? Ah, need. <laughs> the need to whatever, to, um, what's the word? 
to commemorate, to acknowledge something that flows out of community. But first, it's an intrusion. Yeah, I was thinking it's a little, more it's a little solid that you that you have to. Yeah, your your heart suffer. gets hurt by mm -hmm. something, and yeah. then you have to discover it yourself. Like birth, <clears throat> like birthing, giving birth. All right. And the growth of tradition as requiring ruptures mm -hmm. in history, which a few weeks ago you had talked about, with something like the Holocaust and things that happen in history that can have the unexpected effect that actually, as you mentioned a few weeks ago, that it's difficult to say it like this, but that in the aftermath of the Holocaust, which is some sort of a nick on the tradition, that there was a kind of growth Right. That we haven't seen. Thinning out the hearth, pruning the trees, all that kind of stuff comes up. Including, you know, having that little bit of a bent, <coughs> you finally come out of that nicked seed. Mm -hmm. You know, a bit of protection to start with until you can um, get the leaves out. The idea, the, the idea of uh, the lotus that was transported and then grown in the same way. You know, uh, this book I'm reading on American Judaism, you know, we're transported and the changes come. You know, America has had a, a great deal to do with the changes in Judaism, but the changes come, but there's still that, you know, we're going by the, uh, what it was a 1,400-year-old... Uh, Lotus flower, right? No, the, 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 the gardening book. 4,000-year-old gardening book. You know, we're still using 4,000-year-old gardening book, even though we're transplanted all the <laughs> Yeah. It needed to know that because otherwise, you know, you would not know about the, the yeah, yeah. Uh, about the nick and the and the and the ouch and the whole, the ganze Geschäft. Yeah. I think you didn't finish what you wanted to say. Oh, I, I just was thinking that on this image of tradition needing a nick in order to grow um, from a few just weeks ago uh, in the in the parsha with the idea that the giving of the of the of the luchot itself first is they're broken, they're completely shattered. Um, and I had never thought of that image in this, in this mold, that that's um, a symbolic important lesson about how tradition needs to come out. It needs to come out through not just a nick, but maybe through like a more of a shattering, um, a, a very deep nick, as it were. So that image of the shattering um, of the luchot that just came to mind. Um, and, and related also came to mind something that you had mentioned a few weeks ago also, that at the personal level, the idea that um, sometimes a, a nick or a flaw or a rupture can actually and will actually be the place for growth, like you mentioned with the opal, um, with the mm -hmm. opal, that for an opal it's the places where there's the defects right. that will channel the light most. So. Thank you, though, for now. <laughs> if you want. And if, there, if not, there's another chair someplace. There, there was a... You know, in Israel, there's a society... Um, Just one second. Thank you. Okay. Go on. There's a society for the preservation of wildflowers, mm -hmm. right? Which is really... It's wonderful for what it accomplishes because it preserves um, areas um, where there are certain unique things that happen. Nadia and I, when we were living in the Galil in 78, came the, sp the spring of 79, 
and we were living in this valley with this long stretch of 50 miles at least of, of um, foothills. So on the side came spring and the wildflowers came up. What was utterly amazing was that sections of one color flowers. Nobody planted them. Well, no, no human planted them. But there was a whole field, you know, going hundreds of yards of yellow, then purple wildflowers, but no mixture of them. Now, when I asked one of the Moshavnikim how that happened, his response, and this was a secular, all right, he said, Zenes. But then he went on to explain that what happens is is that um, the seeds are blown by the wind and drop, and then they'll come up next spring. I said, so how come a purple one seed from a purple plant didn't land by the wind in the yellow? He thinks about it and he says, the oddness. <laughs> <laughs> Well, if you remember the way Lynn uh, Margulis was describing how the Gaia uh, thing comes up about using the daisies, the different colors of daisies, reflecting sunlight and stuff like that. This is where the people, that's, you know, that's my old rap about the people who don't believe in intelligent design because they think the intelligent design comes from the outside. You know, he sits there on the outside and shapes it. Right. <clears throat> Instead of thinking that it's in memalikolalmen, it's in the inherent part that, 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 that the design is. So it is, uh, you know, how does uh, slime mold know how to get together, you know? How do, everything is in community. Everything that lives, lives in community. Nothing lives in isolation. That's so amazing. Can't, you can't live in isolation. So the body, if you, if you were to find out how many, how many beings collaborate in your body, from molecules all the way up to mitochondria, to this, to that, so many collaborations are going on until it gets to where I can uh, talk, think, and so on. Okay. <clears throat> We're going to go to base Nissan. <clears throat> so I want to start with a niggin that he liked. Na 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 
And then it would come an obligato by the the, the guy who who would um, improvise on on the van. And so on so forth. Okay. W-E-B-D. <coughs> That's right. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's right. They love that. So, 
he was the second son of Reb um, Shmuel of Lubavitch, who died very young. Uh, he was 48 years old, Reb Shmuel of Lubavitch, mm -hmm. who himself was the youngest son of the Tzemach Tzedek. And uh, when the Tzemach Tzedek passed on, he had six sons. And as it happened with many of those um, dynasties, that the sons all started courts of their own. Mm -hmm. And it was a question as to who's going to inherit the seat, you know. That's number one. Number two, with the seat, the name Lubavitch, because the other one took the name Kopusht, and another one took the name Yadi, and, and Bobroisk, number of other towns where, the, where they settled. One was in Avruch, different ones. So there was an old Chosset who was still with Reb Shneya Zalman. Kushel Yepler was his name. He was a tough guy. Uh, they say, I'm not sure if it was him or somebody else, but it could have been him, that one day the Rebbe came home, Reb Shneya Zalman came home, and hanging outside of his window by a gartel <laughs> was him, Kushel Yepler, uh -huh. still young. What was his name again? Kusha Yekutiel of, of the town Lepla. Okay. Yepla. So Kusha Lepla. So he was a toughie. So um Shneer Zalman says to him, What are you doing hanging out of the window? He says, In front of a tailor hangs the scissors, in the front of a shoemaker hangs a boot. What should hang in front of a Rebbe? A chosset. But that reminded him of the story of the Moyle right. with his sign. Right. I know. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so at any rate, um, this guy, uh, he also, Reb Shneer Zalman, when they came to arrest him, wanted to flee first. So he grabbed the Rebbe and says, You're, I'm not going to let you flee. He says, why not? Uh, that they might kill me. And he says, look, if you're a Rebbe, no bullet is going to take you. And if a bullet will take you, it's a sign you're no Rebbe, then you deserve to die. Kusha oh. <laughs> said that to him. So he says to him in, in return, he says, and why, with a smile at this point, and why should I have to die if I'm not a Rebbe, if I'm a plain Jew? He says, because you took away so much Olam Haza from people. Mm. You know, so many, if you are not a Rebbe and you took away so much of, of the enjoyment of this world from people, you deserve to get shot. Mm. Uh, so he went back in, and then the rest of the story of how he was arrested and was taken, so on and so forth happened. So he is now an old man, pretty old man. And he goes around from one of the Rebbe's sons to another and say, I want to hear you say chesidus. And he's going to make up his mind who's going to be his Rebbe from now on. But you can imagine that this was also important because people were looking to see 
you know, he's an old maven whom he's going to uh, check out. So he comes to Reb Shmuel. <coughs> and um, says, Shmulik, just like this, you know, he had seen already his father when he was young, you know. So he says, Shmulik, put on the hittel, meaning the, the streimel, and zog chsides. And he listens to him and he says, you are the Rebbe. So I've always asked this question, you know, how did he know? What was it that he was trying to check out, you know, in the Rebbe, in, in the way in which he was saying chsides? And it strikes me, um, in relation to Reb Miles, you know, Miles is so wonderful when he says, when he teaches, he's always in touch with what, you, what he teaches. I've found that there are people who are, are, are good, they know all the concepts, they can say all the things, you know, but the reality that he's talking about, he's in touch with, and that's, that's wonderful. I think that was the thing that Kusha Leffler wanted to find out. Mm. So, he was young, became a Rebbe, and all kinds of stories about uh, the Rebbe Maharash I could tell, but it's not his yard site, it's his son's yard site. So, when he was 48 years old, he asked his um, three of his older Hasidim, they were all Rabbonim, you know, they were the, the it's like, like his best in. And he asked them, what do you think? Mm -hmm. This uh, dire I'm living in is getting to be a little too small for me. Do you think I should live in a larger place? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they agreed. They said, yes, you know, like fawning Hasidim. And then they realized that he was saying goodbye, mm -hmm. that this, this place was getting too narrow for him. Mm -hmm. So he died at 48. So he left young uh, in, in his teens. He left his children and teens. The oldest one was Zalman Ang. The second one was Sholem Dov Bear. And the third one was Mendel, named after the Tzemach Tzedek. Okay. So when the kids were playing, and I think I told you that story before, when the kids were playing, what were they playing? Rebbe and Chosit. So, right? So they're playing Rebbe and Chosid, and um, the younger one, that's to say Reb Shalom Dov Bear, gives to his brother, you be the Rebbe and I'll be the Chosid, and he comes in and he asks him for a tikkun. Help me fix something up, I did something wrong. And he says, what did you do wrong? He says, uh, I forgot to make a broche over some food that I ate. The older one says, mm -hmm, I know exactly what you have to do. For the next month, every thing that you're going to say, even the broche, ashayotza, everything, say it out of the siddur. That'll be your tikkun. You'll not forget making a broche. The younger one said, you didn't do it right. Mm -hmm. So he says, what do you mean I didn't do it right? I watched Abba, you know, through the keyhole when a chassid came and asked him the same question as what he answered. 
He says, but you didn't do it right. Papa always sighs before he gives an answer. Right. You didn't right. give a krechts, okay? <laughs> and, uh, you know, when, when I first heard you tell that story, it had such an impact on me. Every now and then when I have to do a, um, <clears throat> where, where I want to help somebody who's going through like a health issue, I always make sure to sigh first. So that, so that the, whatever the bracha is, it's not really coming through me, it's coming, mm. I'm just the mouthpiece for the bracha that needs to come. But it's an amazing story. Amen. Amen. And I'm at this stage in my life where I'm trying to get my safta's oi. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. It's because she had an oi that could, you know, that, could, that just came right from the, from, from the bowels of the earth, you know, up through her body and was such an expression of so much that words couldn't say, but she she did so much healing every time she made an oi, and I've been trying to get that oi, and it's just, my oi is too thin. <laughs> uh. <laughs> mm -hmm. right. Could that be a valid Jewish meditation? The oi? Sure. Sometimes, you know, I used to, I'm, I'm become very tame. Uh. <laughs> and, you know? You remember me maybe when I was less tame, but sometimes I would do a whole zikr of oys, beginning mm. with plumbing all the painful oys until mm. you got to the ecstatic oys. Mm. Oy, 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 you know? <laughs> but yeah, so that's 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 that. Mm. Um, Tikkun Chatzot was a place where the oy was grounded in. You know, I think we we. Uh, Jews had a lot of tzolis before, but the pain that the whole planet has at this point is so great that we are shielded. We are shielded because otherwise we, you know, every day stuff comes in, and uh, this morning people drowned in a capsized <coughs> ship and stuff like that, and people get killed and so on. The other story was another time they're playing in the same positions, and uh, he comes and says, I need a tikkun. What's the tikkun for? I took a pickle, and I, didn't, and I ate it, and I didn't ask mother's permission. So the older brother laughs. He says, uh, what do you... What do you, for this, you need a tikkun. Mother would be very happy that you eat, you know, because he was sort of uh, hardly ate anything, so he was glad that he would eat. So he laughed. He says, you won't be a Rebbe, you're not a Rebbe. He says, why not? He says, when a chosid comes with a pain, a Rebbe never laughs. Okay? So you, ha you have a notion of who he became, all right? For a number of years, he didn't take on being a Rebbe, and the other um, cousins of his were continuing. They were gathering chassidim. Uh, the older brother wanted to be a merchant. He didn't. He says, I'm not a rebbe. That's not me. That's not me. So finally, they prevailed on him, and he became the rebbe. There was a time that he also made his way to Vienna because he was depressed. And he saw Freud, and that was that wonderful story that Joseph Burke wrote about in great detail. And he had it on the on the web at one point. It was uh, in the psychoanalytic review as well. Huh? Yeah. 
If you can find us the thing, and uh, I have it at home someplace. I'll look for it. Yeah, I didn't file it. You know, uh, it's a it's a wonderful series of stories about the conversations that they had, and so on. At one point, Freud asked him, "What is your work?" And he says, "I teach Chassidus." So he says, "What's Chassidus?" So he said, "There are two two continents. There's a continent of the head and the continent of the heart." And the two of them are not connected. And my job is to make sure that there should be a communication between these two continents. Mm. And that's so wonderful to hear, you know, because recently there was an issue of, I think, of Newsweek, or was it Time? Either Time or Newsweek had an issue about Freud's early years before he started to, to get into psychoanalysis and so on and so forth. Okay, so that's that. There's, there's another piece. Um, he went to Freud the press, <coughs> and Freud told him to go on a speaking tour in Europe. Uh, he said, people will love you, you'll feel good again. He said, no, you don't understand. When I don't feel the holy presence, I'm depressed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, we could all use a little bit of that, no? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So, his teaching, sometimes, uh, he had this amazing quality of being able to give a mimer that would last two, three hours. His Hasidim would hear it, and they would repeat it verbatim afterwards. And some of those deep teachings that he gave um, are found in a, in a number of books, but I'll read you a little bit of his Sichot, the table talk, okay? It's Simchas and one person drank some schnapps and started to cry. And the Rebbe said, now is not the time to cry. Crying was Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, not now. <laughs> the likelihood is that you laughed when you said the al so you're crying on <laughs> I don't mean that he really laughed, but he really didn't cry at that point. So he says, if now is not the time to cry, so what's the time for right now? He says, I'll tell you later. But now is not the time to cry. Uh, I'm having a hard time uh, reading this. <coughs> it is in um, mimeograph, you know. and uh, uh, But let me see if I can read you another couple of things here. There was a Shoichet in Petersburg. His name was Zalman the Shoichet. 
So they wanted him to get the Kabbalah from a Shechet, who was a real great Shechet, and so they sent him to a small, uh, dark place. He came there to the Rav, and the Rav was learning Kabbalah. No, 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 that's, this is, this reminds me of another story, but not this particular story. He, he begins the story about, <clears throat> this was not Kushi Lepler, but this was Binyamin Kletzker. <laughs> uh, did I, I must have told you that story about the Kabbalist up to here, no? No? Okay. So Benjamin Kletzker is walking on his way to Reb Schneer's almond. <coughs> and um, why should you give the mitzvah to a horse? You know, walking is a <laughs> and, you know, and especially if you're poor. So pilgrimage really means walking. Uh, do you know about, uh, what is it, uh, San Jacinto? There's this walk in uh, Spain. Um, the Pilgrims Walk? Yeah. Yes, they're here. Huh? Those people are in Boulder now. Uh-huh. So I'm, I'm taking them on a hike Sunday. Uh, wonderful. Which ones? The ones who walk the Postello, Compostello, or whatever it is? Yeah. So it's an amazing walk that people do and, and so on and so forth. And now they have started a walk from Haran, the birthplace of Abraham, all the way to Mecca, a, a group that's been going that walk. So anyway, he's walking to the Rebbe, and along comes a carriage, and uh, in that carriage sits a Shena Menschele, you know, he's geputzt and a dandy, and he has a driver there, and he's got two horses. Two horses is better than one horse, you know. Mm -hmm. And so he's a, he's a Balmerkova, you know, and uh, and he knocks on the on the window of his thing, and he says, "Young man, young man, you know, because he sees a chosid goes with a pekele on his on his shoulders and, and a stecken in his hand." He says, "Where are you off to?" He says, "To Ljoshne. Oh, he says, "What a coincidence! I'm also going to Ljoshne. Come on, sit in the wagon. We'll talk Torah in between and so on and so forth." The chosid looks at this guy and he can't imagine what does he want with the Rebbe. Mm -hmm. But now he's curious, he sits in, in the wagon, and the guy introduces himself. He says, you see, my Zeta was a great Kabbalist. He was a Kabbalist up to here. My father didn't quite make it up to there. He was only up to here. Neither, I'm, I'm over only up to here, but I heard that Yoshne <coughs> There is now this new Rebbe, and they say that he is a Kabbalist. So I've come. Uh, I want to see and test him out to see what does he really know. Ah, says Binyamin Kleska, how remarkable, how remarkable. You know what? The other day I stopped in a town. There was a Besmedrish, and in the Besmedrish I found a piece of, you remember the story now, I see on your face. I, I found a piece of, of Torah. And it, I puzzled about it. Must it's a definitely Kabbalah, 
and I, I want to know, maybe you know where it's from or what it, what it really stands for. In the beginning, everything was mefuzerum afoyrot, was nifrod. And then nisachet hakoil. And then there were kavim. And from the kavim, there was nekuda beheichle. And from that, through the collaboration of the social mayim, the social age, everything came out good. So he goes and, and does his hard drive, and he says, it's not Zoharic, it's certainly not pre-Zoharic. Mm -hmm. No, I can't, it's not Lorianic either, it's not Cordovarian. I'm really puzzled by it, and he says, that's good. I think I'm going to try this one out on uh -huh. Ripschneer Zalman. <laughs> <coughs> so he comes to Ripschneer Zalman. You know that story? No, no. no? So he comes to Ripschneer Zalman, uh, and after all, he's a Balmer cover. You know, he gets uh, admitted much earlier than, than Binyamin the Chosid. And so he uh, said, on the way, I met this young man, and he proposed this text. And Reb Shneir Zalman says, well, would you please say the text? And he begins to give over. Reb Shneir Zalman stops for a moment and thinks and thinks and says, you know what? It's Kreplach. <laughs> In the beginning, it was flower, but and it was made into one piece. And then lines appeared, <laughs> crisscrossed. <laughs> there was a little meat being put in the other. It was uh, put around it and was put into the boiling water, which was the collaboration of the malach of, of fire and the malach of, of, of water. And it came out bechitov. And that story was a story I heard very early. In order to tell us that don't get snowed by the fancy words, check what do they stand for. Okay? As the Rebbe checked and found out, the only place where it made any sense was in Kreplach, in no other world. So this story that he begins here has such an opening. At one point, he was sitting with Chassidim. I wish I could find these, these things. You know, th my trouble is I read these things on Shabbos, and I don't mark them. You need post-it notes. Huh? Post-it notes. And now yeah, you can do post-it notes as a child. <laughs> <laughs> uh, sometimes I used to use um, uh, paper clips. Uh, someone once told me that, that this is muktze. Is that right? <laughs> so, uh, that's nice. Is that a post-it note, is it? Huh? Why would a post How could a post-it note be mucked? Because it has a writing. It is set aside for that process, you know. Mukhtse machmas maloche, mutzmas machmas. But there are those that are just meant dafka for marking a, I don't right. know. Yeah. Yeah. Where the signatures go in. That yeah. little dot. Yeah. Yeah. Those. We used yeah. to use them at, uh, at Hillel for, for, to mark people who came on Shabbos for dinner. Uh -huh. And there were these special little things. Because uh -huh. first we, they wanted to use paper clips. So I checked it out. I said, you can't use paper clips. I love being more, you know, than they were. <laughs> so uh, uh, you can't use paper clips. So we would find these, these things like you were mentioning, the little uh -huh. tape thingies. Right. And they, right. that they could put on. Right. 
<laughs> the oh. thing that was important about his work was that he decided he. Uh, I'm talking back again about Rav Schollenberg, that he felt mm. that um, in the old system that you had before his time, there were yoshvim, you know, people who would come to a rebbe. And they would stay, they were the, the contemplatives who would stay there. In Bells, for instance, they, they, they used to have a minimum of 200 Yoshvim there. Um, and they were, um, they, they had their own kitchen, they took care of themselves, they slept on benches in the Bismedrish. I mean, this was the Yoshvim. And that started out, Epstein's Almond had Yoshvim the, the same way. But Sholem uh, Bear felt this wasn't the right way. You needed to have a cadre of people now who not only are coming in and are uh, educating themselves, as it were. He wanted to have it with, with more order. So he started the yeshiva Tamchet Mimim, which was the chief yeshiva of Chabad. And the yeshiva in Brooklyn is called Tamchet Mimim. He founded it. <coughs> and he made sure that there should be not only a seder for Gemara, and it should be a good seder for Gemara, but also there should be a seder for Chesidus, and that while there is a Rosh Hashiva in charge of teaching you Gemara, the person in charge of teaching Chesidus was a mashpia. And uh, that's where the, that word comes into our usage here, the mashpia. I think I told you the story about my mashpia, Jacobson, who once saw me making those faces in mm -hmm. Davenin, you know, like, oh, yo, 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 yo. And he came, gave me a zetz on the side and said, did you try it with a smile? <laughs> so, and, and it, it, it just changed the whole thing about how, how I was Davenin when it, it still hurt, you know. <laughs> yeah. But I was Davenin with a smile, it was, it was different. <laughs> uh, that way. So, we had early hours, <clears throat> so you'd wake up, go to mikveh, 7.30 began the Seder of Chesidus, you'd learn Chesidus till 9 o'clock, 9 to 10.30 was time for Davin in the morning, then we'd go and eat, 11 o'clock was the first shiur, and was over at 2.15. Then we would have a break and go for lunch, and then we would come back and learn Legirse, those things that we, you know, not Leyuna, not the, the at depth, but to cover ground a lot. And I was, um, we also had an hour where you could do whatever you wanted. And I was at that time avid to go to the library, open up books, and see what's in them. And so I would discover um, interesting books like the Reshit Chochma and like the Mavor um, Yabok, um, that book that talks about the afterlife stuff and so on and so forth. Because I was curious to see. And lots of, in Chabad, they didn't do much uh, looking into Hasidic Shesvarim outside of Chabad. But I got to know a little bit of the Noah Melimelech, of the uh, um, uh, no. Here he is. 
the Degel Mahnefrayim. You know, getting older is, is so so hard. The words don't come so fast. <coughs> the Oye of Yisrael and so on. So the yeshiva was, they had different branches. Some of them were in Lubavitch itself, and sometimes he sent people away to a small town where there was a mashpia who was very, very special. One of them was Gronim, Shmuel Gronim, and when they, and people, another one was called Hendel, and they sent to these people, and uh, they really worked with, with the young Hasidim, very strong. One of them says, uh, before you go and meet the Rebbe, you have to spend Shisha Hadoshim B'Shem and Hamoyer, B'Shisha Hadoshim B'Psomim B'Samru Kehanoshim, which was translated to mean uh, you work in, in Milirut, in Tshuva, uh, for six months, and then for six months you work in uh, Simcha, and then, when you have prepared yourself, you know, then you come to the Rebbe. So that's how people were, were working in those days. The First World War was coming. Before that time, <coughs> there were Rebbes who were trying to create, you know, modernity was coming in, and that was a very hard thing, because as long as you had the Shtetlach, which meant that it was before the railroad came. <coughs> so all those little shtetlach, their connection was with a the balagola. There was somebody who would take people from this town to that town. Once the railroad came, along with that came industrial revolution. And so towns that didn't have many Jews before, all of a sudden had lots of Jews coming in, working in those towns, and very poor people. So you have um, Lodge became a manufacturing city. Warsaw, the same way. And people lived in uh, very difficult places, in basement places and so on. And it wasn't much better when they came to America because of sweatshops and so on. So, on. so the Industrial Revolution created a change. So it wasn't anymore that a shoemaker could make a pair of shoes, one, one pair of shoes a week, and that, that would give him Parnassus. He would bind two books that would give him Parnassus, but by the time and the Industrial Revolution came, then you had to produce more product in order to get uh, the money that you needed, and, and life cost more, and accommodations cost more, and it was very hard. So many rabbis were then uh, talking about how do you organize survival from the small places to the bigger places. And you got to understand how difficult it was during the first World War. Many Jews <coughs> lived in what is now, what was then, the Austro-Hungarian Empire and Germany. Germany extended through Silesia all the way to East Prussia. And a big chunk of Poland was under the, the German thing. Then there was uh, the lower part, the Ukraine, was under the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So the place where I was born was one of them, Austro-Hungarian Empire. And all the kinder, the, the children of the Rizhina Rebbe, uh, Cholke, 
Usyatin, uh, Sadagera, uh, Bahush, all these were in, in Boyan. They were all in that, in that neighborhood. So when the war broke out, so the Russians and, and the Germans were fighting, and uh, the Jews who lived in what was Austro-Hungarian Empire, the Rebbes went to Vienna. And so after the First World War, they didn't go back to Tchortkov uh, uh, and to the other places. They stayed in Vienna. Mm -hmm. uh, <coughs> the Radomska stayed in Berlin. Uh, so th there was a, a whole shift of that. Now, the difference was that once the Rebbe was no longer in another small shtetl, all you had to take was a trolley car to go to the Rebbe. If you lived in Warsaw and you wanted to go to Ger, uh, so Ger was like Louisville here, you know, it was just close by. The Rebbe, Lubavitch Rebbe, was not Wotsk, there was another trolley car ride from Warsaw, you know, these things. And uh, the, the Piasetsna, the same situation, they were all, all in the neighborhood. So, Moving it over to an urban thing was a very hard thing. He ran away from Sholem uh, Dov, they ran away from the Germans because he didn't want to be under the Germans. He had this sense. And it was very interesting because Chabad Rebbes liked being under the Russian Tsar for all the Tsars that they had. So when Napoleon was fighting uh, against Russia and so on and so forth, they sided with with uh, the Russian Tsar. So he said he didn't want to stay in Lubavitch, and he went to Rostov on the Don River. And I don't understand something about linguistics here, this is interesting. Donau, Donetsk, Dnieper, the Dnie sound that has something to do with rivers going. You're done. <laughs> Yardin, yeah, interesting. I don't, I don't know what this is, but this it has something with psycholinguistics to do that that rivers have that sound. So he went. The nun sound. Hmm? The D N. Yeah, the Donau, the Danube, you know, the Donets and the and the, uh, yeah, the Volga doesn't fit. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but Dnieper, you know, Dniester, a number of those rivers this way. So he went to Rostov, and uh, by that time it's gotten very bad because the communists had won, the whites and the reds, and there was uh, until they finally settled all these kinds of things. And now it was a question of how do you start out a network of yeshivas underground in Russia. <coughs> it was getting really hard. In 1927, just before Pesach, you know, at this time, he passed on on the second day of Nissan, and it was typhoid that he had contracted. So, again, it took a while until Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak took over, but Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak already was in charge of the network of the yeshivas beforehand. So, uh, no wonder that later on the Soviets arrested him and put him um, 
for godly activity and send him to Siberia to Kastrama. And finally he was released on Yud Beis Tammuz, Yud Gimel Tammuz, and that, that's that story. But this was the yard site of, of the Rebbe, Rebbe Sholem Bear today. So later on I want to say a Kaddish for him, and there's another person I have in mind to say Kaddish for at this point. So we'll do that. Could I ask a question? Please. The <coughs> the Jews who were involved with the Bolshevik Revolution yeah. that I hear a lot about from um, some of my Christian friends, where did they come from? What communities did they come out of? You mean the Yefsekis? I don't know what they're called, but you said like Lubavitch supported the Tsar, but many Jews were involved with the Soviet Revolution. That's right. And where did they come from? What communities did they come from? No, they were all from the same places. They Take were a look. from a firm background? Uh, yes. Communists? Take, but, but you see, you've got to understand how that filtered through. That's important. Somebody's going to say, uh, my grandfather was not religious, but he was a socialist, a communist, and this and that. So it was very important for them. People used to think of the Reuter Mashiach, you know? Mm. Uh, the, 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 the Reuter Mashiach, the Red Mashiach is going to come, is going to save him. Biro Bijan was, before Stalin, Biro Bijan was a very promising place. Mm. You know, that they, and they had a Yiddish culture and they wrote Yiddish without final letters. Sholem, Shin, Aleph, Lamed, Ayin, and a regular mem. They had their, their orthography and so on and so forth. But there's also, um, when I was studying the, uh, um, the Russian Revolution back in the 70s, um, the professor, this was at the Hebrew University, the professor read from the minutes of the um, first couple meetings that took place after Lenin came back to Russia and the Comintern started meeting and planning. And it's written in the minutes that one of them, be it Kaganovich or whoever, yeah. would say, can we stop now? It's time to daven mincha. <laughs> All right? uh -huh. So they weren't totally atheist by that. No, because, mm -hmm. the, the, see, this is the, the strange <laughs> thing that... That the red diaper babies and all that stuff that you get uh, of the 30s, you know, these were people who wanted very much a better world order. Yeah. So I have this story from Winnipeg. I think I told you about Moshe. Yeah? yeah? Uh, uh, what was it? Moshe Gray. Moshe Gorari was his name. And he was uh, a representative of the f district, the northern district of Winnipeg, to the parliament. So... He was also uh, uh, in the in that neighborhood where Russians and Ukrainians and Polacks were, and he knew all those languages, and he sold them tickets and sent packages to to the Ukraine and so on. And so forth. he had the whole arrangement there. Canada was not as tough about sending things to 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 Russia and communicating with Russia than the United States was. So one day he calls me up and he says. Uh, Zalman, what is it? He says, every year I give a talk at, in, in Parliament, and the Hansard, Hansard is where they write them up, and the talk is about, I say, I'm a socialist, but not a socialist for Marx, I'm a socialist for my Zaya. Uh -huh. uh, 
now I think I said so many years a socialist from Isaiah. Maybe I could be a socialist from Jeremiah. Could you help me? Uh. <laughs> and the last one that, that he did before he totally retired was a socialist from Pirke Oves. I remember a few years ago there was an article in, in, um, in Haaretz or whatever that, the, that announced the death of Kaganovich. Mm -hmm. right? and, and here's a nice Jewish boy who turns out to be one of the great killers in human history because he was basically Stalin's hatchet man through the purges. When he died, he died at a very old age, forgotten pensioner mm -hmm. and all that. They found his grandson who lives on a kibbutz and has lived there quietly, changed his name, mm -hmm. and only revealed when his grandfather's death was announced. And he said in the interview that he was on a kibbutz trying to do tshuva. <laughs> mm. Wow. Well, the whole story of Leibel Trotsky, you know, uh, is a whole other mice. If you could imagine what it would have been if Trotsky would have gotten in there instead of Stalin. That uh, did you? Did any of you see the movie where the South won the war? <laughs> no, no. Just played last week, oh. and it was an amazing. It was an amazing movie to see, uh, and I could imagine, you know, if I were to play it in my head, what would Russia have been like if Trotsky would have won? Yeah. All right, we got to talk a little bit about Pesach. Okay. What seems to come up this year about Pesach that you'd like to? Shmuz about. <laughs> I just want to say next week we don't meet anymore until after Pesach. Okay. Well, in honor of uh, Reb Yaakov, our dear son has put on his iPod all the different artists who have recorded Bob Marley's Freedom Song. Mm. Right? So he plays that through the radio when I drive him to school this past week. So I got a hit that that would be a wonderful way to go into the Seder, right? Because it's such a powerful song, and it has such reverberations of how that country was really founded by <laughs> Jews. I mean, Bob Marley and the whole Rastafarian liberation, freedom. Is Bob Marley Jewish? No, 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 no. But the fact is, is that when you listen to all their, the Rastafarian um, material, mm. and the fact that they that they probably came from Ethiopia originally, mm. and their, their their inner being is so liberation and 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 code and living by a a moral higher authority and all that, that you really get and and we res. I mean, there's the resonator of from that music. And I thought that would be a great way to start the Seder, is just to listen to the different artists who have recorded it with such mm. an all-black artist, interestingly. His name, the, the emperor's name, Chayla Shalashi, right. mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. was Trinity. Chayla Shalashi is there. And his title was Negus Negesti, Noges Hanogsim, right. you know? 
Melech Hamlochi. Yeah, yeah. Mm. King of Kings. Um, oh. What was the other thing? Lion of Judah. Lion he was known of as Judah. the Lion of Judah. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so you have. And he was uh, short, shorter than me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wonderful. Okay, so maybe we'll play that. All right. Anything else about Pesach that you'd like to talk about? Last year, remember, we were talking about the chemical kasher. Right, right. Okay, getting things ready for Pesach. Um, anything else about who's going to be Sephardi this year? <laughs> yeah. Here we are. With matzahs or... Oh, man, when you make that first time when you do it. <laughs> <laughs> it is so hard. It's like it feels trace, like you're almost homesick, yeah? Yeah. I've been trying for years and I can't do it. You know, Yo. the first year we did it, we, it was a decision that we made when we were in Berkeley. A bunch of the renewal rabbis sat together, you know, months before Pesach, and and we really, you know, we really went through all the reasons why, why we would, why we should, why. And we, we we made a commitment that we were that we were all you know going to um, make that shift, and this was f a few years after we'd been to Israel during Pesach, and and I couldn't eat in my family's home because all of my cousins have married Sfaradim. and there I was at the Pesach seder of my family, and there's rice on the at the seder table, and I, I was having a real challenge with this and 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 the whole week during Pesach you know every every restaurant was you know kasher le Pesach le kidniot and there was no place we could eat it was just mind-boggling so a few hours a few years later we're making this decision with all these renewal rabbis in town and um and I think that both uh Reb Deborah Cohn Lerner and I felt a little bit like you know it was the guys made this decision. And so that year when we prepared our kitchens, you know, I had rice in my kitchen. When I cleaned the kitchen and I changed everything around, whatever, I had rice in the kitchen, but I didn't cook it the whole week. So the next year we were going to make the seder together with the learners. And Michael said, I'll only make a seder together with you guys if there's hummus at the seder table. Because the previous year also Deborah didn't cook the rice. So it's like we had kidney in our kitchen, but we didn't eat them. So the next year, the guys sort of made us make that make mm -hmm. that break, and, and it was a it was Estelle, um, Frankel Frankel who brought the hummus to the seder table. Uh -huh. okay. So it's it, nice it, on it, it took, <laughs> but, but it took two years yeah. and a whole community of like encouraging each other to step to step over that line. Yeah. and I find that it's more difficult now, actually, Dafka. Um, because you can't just have any kitniot in your ki in your kitchen during Pesach. It has to be checked still. It has to be for Pesach, you know. So, so it makes you even that much more conscious. It doesn't make it so much easier necessarily. Well, you know, we 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 were talking about um, quinoa. <coughs> we we're talking about kasha. Uh, Kamut. Huh? Kamut. Kamuta Kamarant, I don't know which one. One of them is real, is real grain, but it's an older form of, of wheat, so that can't make it. What about just distinguishing no grains, period, but legumes, yes? <laughs> well, no grains, uh, 
I know that there's biblical grains yeah. that you're referring to, yes. Right. Um, and then there's Ashkenazi with respect to grains. Right. Um, but if you're talking, and then with Sephardi, you know, they had a different system. Um, but what about distinguishing grains I think it's a good. Legumes. I think it's a very good idea. Especially for vegans. Yeah. Well, the, the problem that comes up when you say grains is... Um, you don't consider certain it, things are grains. Well, when you look at those that are not from the grass family. Correct. Okay? Correct. But then you have, uh, for instance, corn. You know, it's American corn family, is from the grass family. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And yet it has been considered by many people, even some Ashkenazim, in Romania, they used to use corn on Pesach mm -hmm. because uh, they saw it as a vegetable mm -hmm. rather than as a as a grain. Well, amaranth would be more like buckwheat, which is not in the grass. Right, right. So kasha is buckwheat, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So is kasha okay? Huh? Have, is kasha okay or not okay? Well, it depends on who you're going to ask. There's some, some people who feel anything that is grain-like, you know. But then Say, sunflower seeds, you know, are getting into the same kind of category. They're little seeds out of a plant, out of a flower. Um, potatoes, when the, the muggin... They're just in this, like with quinoa, like with... Uh, well, what's wrong with legumes and all that? I know. That's what I'm saying. But, you know, if you go by which tradition... Um, considers it more kosher to... Doesn't the Bible tell us not to be more strict than what God has already stated? Mm -hmm. I don't know. I've never understood why they created such a tradition. Unless somebody was heavily invested in potatoes. <laughs> <laughs> Even potatoes was a problem. They yeah. came from America. Yeah. And the Muggen of Rome uh, for a <coughs> while tried to... There was a... Uh, some people didn't have potatoes. He considered them legumes, potatoes? No, he considered them because of starch. You see, the whole question that came in about the kidneys mm. was, A, some grains may sneak in, and so you have to always sort them out mm. and look good. Right, and that becomes real mindfulness practice when you're going through your lentils and making sure there's no wheat in there. Yep. When we uh, or even when we baked matzahs, uh, and we would go through and watch for any sprouted piece, and we would take out a sprouted uh, um, corn, and, and I, I, you know, I miss baking matzahs that uh, that we used to do in Philadelphia. Yeah. Um, I don't want to do it here. <laughs> too much solace and trouble. But I looked out this morning, and we have a, a like a flower pot, a big one. And in there is uh, some horseradish, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. fresh one. I'm going to dig it up before Pesach. Yeah. All right, I think we're going to stop today. I'm Can tired. Can I ask one question? Yes. What, what is the source that grain products that aren't leavened are forbidden on Passover? In other words, noodles, which have no yeast in them and they're not risen. Why are those forbidden on Passover? Low plug. Watch that word, low plug. Yeah. Uh, a lot of halachic stuff is based on malefides. Malefides? Yeah. 
I don't trust those guys. Right. <laughs> I have, you know, there's bona fides and there's malafides. Right. You know? But it's like, how long? How long was the dough sitting there as a dough before it got turned into a noodle? Uh, because there's a natural um, fermentation. Isn't it apparent to the eye what is written, what is leavened, and what isn't? No. Should be Some of us don't have such good eyes. Right. No, yeah. but Pesach goes bemashehu. I wouldn't trust his. Yeah. And if it's Bemashehu, <laughs> yeah, it, it can already, in 18 minutes, it already, yes. if it's longer than 18 minutes, from the time the water hits the flour. And, right. I remember, and you don't see it till it's in the oven and it starts to bubble. Right. I remember when, when I was in rabbinical school in New York, we went down to see the Martha Ma Bakery. Right. And Manischewitz, we were shocked to see at that time, didn't stop the what I called the presses. <laughs> every 18 minutes and washed them down. So many of the uh, students who were really machmir said they won't need um, Manischewitz, but we went over to the Streitz factory. Yeah. Streitz, they stopped every eight, before 18 minutes, it was like 17 minutes yeah. and some odd seconds, and washed the whole thing down and waited and all that, so we all became Streitz disciples. But wait, how, did, how does something become leaven without yeast? If you just from mix air, water in the air, you don't need yeast. Let us stand. There's plenty of yeast around here yeah. in this air. If we could see it, but normal bread they do put yeast in. Is that well, right? they wanted normal to hurry up. They wanted bread. to hurry up. Oh, is that just the haste? But if you wanted to make sourdough, mm -hmm. you you could gather it. Like if you're in San Francisco, you could get yeast out of the air. Um, that's a very special kind of yeast mm -hmm. to oh. make that good sour. Right. So if you mix the dough, um, flour and water, and let it sit for mm -hmm. two hours, it'll rise? It'll no, but no. first it'll, it, it doesn't rise so. right away. First it right. attracts the yeast, then you let it stand, and then it turns a little sour, and then it... And that's how... The then, you, the then you take space. a little bit of that and put it into the dough, and that's how you make it. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. Kaddish. Kaddish yeah, Kaddish. Just hang in for a moment. Mm-hmm. <laughs>